Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In this episode, we are joined by Jen Elizabeth, a harm reductionist and author out of Southern California. We discuss the principles of harm reduction, compassion as an antidote to shame, and the importance of respecting every person's autonomy. So welcome back to Fucking Cancelled. Um, today we have Jen Elizabeth, who is a harm reduction worker and an author. Hi, Jen. Thanks for being here. Hi. Yeah, we're really excited to have you on the pod. So do you want to just start us off by telling our listeners about just about yourself and your work um, and about, you know, being a harm reduction worker and a, and a writer? Give us some background. Sure. Sure. So I am a sober person, person in recovery. I may first I'll have 10 years. Um, and I believe that people who use drugs should have the autonomy and the right and respect that they deserve. So sometimes that seems to be, I don't know why, but I, I, you know, it seems to be for some reason, like two separate things. And I think that those things can absolutely mutually, you know, come together. Mm -hmm. Um, I am a harm reduction specialist with a concerted effort in the unhoused population and an even more concerted effort in the open street, uh, survival sex workers. Mm I have a syringe service. Um, I do Narcan. I give weed. I do condoms. I do anything that a sex worker would need. Um, And basically, you know, I spent about 15 years unhoused myself, you know, living under bridges and cars. Um, You know, I, in and out of institutions and jails, I was sentenced to state prison. Um, you know, the whole thing, Uh the whole thing, right. Um, I was open street sex worker as well. And so my heart really feels called to people on the streets. Like I, you know, when I first got into recovery, I kind of parroted what I was taught to parrot, right. Is that as soon as you were willing to get sober, I was then willing to care for you. You know, Uh as, as long as you're, as long as you have the desire to stop, then I then can step forward and care for you. But if you don't, or if you're on Suboxone or whatever, then, you know, please don't speak in our meetings. Please don't, you know, the whole thing. And a few years ago, you know, maybe five years ago, I kind of like, well, I just, I looked at my life and I looked at myself and I'm like, does this really feel good to me anymore? Like, this isn't, who am I? Like, what am I doing here? Did I get sober to impress other sober people? Is that, is that like what this is about for me? Cause that started to be what it was about the whole sober recovery influencer thing. And, uh-huh. um, you know, I, I started talking about trauma. I'm a trauma survivor and, a you know, um, childhood sexual abuse survivor and a rape survivor. And all of those things are intertwined uh-huh. within harm reduction, within drug use, within sobriety, within all of it. Um, and so I tried to, you know, share about that. And I just, I really felt like, you know, where, 
where can people go? Like if there's no safe place, if there's no safe people to talk to this, to talk about these things without the agenda that they have to change, you know, I mean, um, and so I started like advocating for myself, um, really doing a lot of healing work. And in that healing work, what I found is that the only thing that has, you know, I've been consumed with shame my entire life consumed. Uh-huh. Um, and the only thing that really has helped that in my trauma work is finding compassion for all those phases in my life that brought me here, the girl under the bridge, the girl in prison, the girl selling her body, all of it Uh has brought me here. And instead of looking at her as some example of how not to live, I look at her as she is my hero because she did everything that she possibly could to bring me to who I am. And so it really just expanded into seeing other people like that. I really believe how we see ourselves is how we see other people. And so if we have no self-compassion and no respect and no dignity for ourselves, that's how we see everyone else. And my whole, my whole vision started shifting on how I saw people that use drugs. I no longer saw that I need to save people. I realize that they're being completely, as this podcast is called, canceled. They're completely canceled by society. Mm-hmm. They're criminalized and shamed and tried to, you know, we remove every access that they have for to take care of themselves. Yeah. It's not that it's not that I need to help them or give them something. It's that they have been blocked off from what they deserve. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's pretty much. Um, what else about me? Yeah. So I write, I try to write, you know, I'm not as good of a writer as you are, but, um, you know, there's just so many amazing writers, but I write and I'm a mom now. And, um, you know, I've so much about the thing, the most constant thing about me is that I'm always changing. Like the things I believe to be true last year are not even the things I believe to be true this year. And probably next year it'll be different. It's like, I'm always willing to be open and learn more. Um, about how I feel about, you know, I do, I, I have a lot of people who abuse other people that I, that I am friends with on the streets that I care for. Um, and it's very interesting because I've somehow separated like the abuse that I've suffered and then the abuse that, you know, it's everybody, it's so intertwined. And if you don't hear someone's full story, then that's where like that hate and, separation there's so much separation between human beings and Mm -hmm. I really feel like I can see myself in everybody Mm -hmm. and in all behaviors and in doing that I'm able to love people just wherever they're at amazing I mean that leads us directly (laughs) to our next question which for our listeners who don't know can you just tell us what harm reduction is and why it's important yeah so harm reduction is like you know, I mean, there's a lot to harm reduction, but it's basically a set of principles and policies that believe in not minimizing the harms that drug use can cause, but um, in building like, you know, that there should be rights and respect and autonomy in all people. Um, it's about decriminalization, abolition, you know, um, we have been we've been in prohibition for over a century. Uh Um, and all it has done is exacerbated our situation because you, when you have criminalization, you're forcing the whole entire industry underground. So we have no regulate, no drug regulation. People are just using whatever they happen to get. Nobody knows what's in it. 
Um, the alcohol industry is a perfect example of safe supply. For instance, for some reason, we've, we have accepted that the alcohol industry is okay. Like you can go ahead and drink. We're going to, we're going to give you the respect that you can give consent. Like how can you even consent to something that you don't even know what's in it? Right. Yeah. We're giving you consent. We respect you, your autonomy, your agency. You can walk into a store, you can look at the label, you know, exactly what you're buying, you know, exactly how much is in what you don't go home and are afraid that you're going to drink one glass and drop it. Yeah. Right. We respect that. It's great. There's money behind it. The men in the white suit and the suits are behind it. It's all good. But for some reason, well, because of racism and, and all kinds of isms, we have deemed other drugs as not acceptable. Those are bad. Mm-hmm. And anyone who uses them are bad. And so we just push everybody down into the dark corners. Um, and makes it harder for people to ask for help. It makes it, it ruins people's chances for jobs. It destroys families. Incarceration destroys families for generations to heal from even one parent being removed in, in the prison system. It trickles, it trickles for generations. Yeah. It's going to take us hundreds of years to heal, even if prohibition stopped right now. Mm-hmm. It's going to take a lo- really long time. Um, and so we really believe in like the quality of community and wellness over the, uh, at, you know, over demanding that drug use stop, mm-hmm. um, you know, and we, you know, realize that there's many issues that surround drug use, racism, you know, gender issues, homophobia, all, you know, classism, all the isms, um, and those are the things we really tackle more than saying, hey, this is the drugs. Everyone's very angry at drugs as at the substance, you know, but really, if you look at the big picture, drugs alone by themselves are not the problem. The problem is everything else, the systems that we have built that make it so hard for anybody to have any type of respect or dignity in what they do. Sex work is a big, a big thing also in harm reduction because it is in the same. And now I work with open street survival sex workers, which really, and I'm going to veer off the harm reduction language here, but who isn't a survival worker? Like any job you have, we live in capitalism, right? So we have, everybody has, most people have jobs they are, they've gotten because they have to survive. Yeah. But we, again, we stigmatize and judge sex work as being, you know, inherently dangerous. Is sex inherently dangerous? No, it's really not. Sex with strangers, is that inherently dangerous? No, it's really not. What's dangerous is the way that we view sex workers, and then that gets taken on by, by the whole society, and then we treat them the way that we've been taught to treat them. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we're working right now. I mean, things are starting to change a little bit. It used to be that you couldn't even possess a certain amount of condoms without getting arrested. That's so crazy. That's so Think about it. Like, think about what that's saying. Like, you're trying to protect yourself. You're trying to have safe sex, which is a a community health benefit. Obviously, yeah. but yet that's proof that you're, that you're, you know, engaging in sex work. So we're going to arrest you. If you get raped or assaulted or any, or robbed, you cannot come forward and say those things happened. If it comes out that that's, that you were doing sex work in that, in that instance, you're getting arrested. Yeah. So again, it pushes women, men, whatever into the darkness and it becomes dangerous. That's why it's dangerous. Yeah. Like, 
prohibition and criminalization is the reason why it's, is the main reason why all this is dangerous, not the activities themselves. Yeah. 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 So like decriminalization is a big part of harm reduction. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, just in case like any of our listeners are just like totally never, never heard about this Mm -hmm. stuff. Like, can you just give like some concrete sort of, like you said, condoms, um, like Narcan you mentioned. So like, that's like- reversing overdoses. Yeah. Narcan's for reversing overdoses, which, you know, people who use drugs are the first responders to overdoses. It's very rarely people, you know, who I guess maybe are uneducated or don't want to see the reality. They think it's all the EMTs and stuff. They're showing No, it's really people who use drugs that are there when their friends overdose. And right now we have a big law that just thankfully did not pass yesterday, but it's, it's still happening is that, if somebody overdoses and you are found to have given them or sold them something that possibly had fentanyl in it, you're going to jail for murder. There is some young kids, 19 years old right now in jail awaiting on a murder trial because their friend overdosed on pills that contained fentanyl. They both overdosed, took the pills and overdosed together, were found unresponsive. The boy was revived and arrested and the girl passed away. So crazy because it's like the... You know, the um, the people who are creating the laws that are, you know, preventing people from having access to a safe supply, of course, bear no legal responsibility for that. But if these kids had access to a safe supply, like, obviously, they would be using the safe supply and this wouldn't be happening. So yeah. it's like extremely misplaced. It is. And, and they believe that this is going, have we not learned that punitive responses are not helping, right? This has not done shit for us in over a century. Like when are we going to realize this is a total failure? When? And so what it's doing is now, if somebody it's making everyone afraid, no one's going to want to stick around when their friend overdoses, they're going to run. The good Samaritan law might as well go out the window. In fact, half of the, half of the benefits that we've seen in having Narcan is going to go out the window because it is people who use drugs that save their friends. So I do Narcan, we do condoms. I do anything that a woman would want. Um, I do also have a big trans community. So anything that you would want before a date, they they want (laughs) vents, gum, lubes, candies, uh, bras, you know, I mean, I deal with the unhoused people. So these are not, you know, there's obviously many different, you know, levels of sex work and different routes and stuff. Um, And I have a syringe exchange, which means that I have, you know, new needles Mm -hmm. um, and I take old needles and um, have, you know, alcohol swabs and we do safer smoking kits with pipes for meth and crack with, you know, little rubber pieces so that they don't, you know, it's all Mm -hmm. about community. It's all about keeping them people, everyone safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. every Wednesday not just people who use drugs everybody yeah and do you do you work out of a center or is it like a mobile uh initiative so I work with the sidewalk project and we are in Skid Row Los Angeles I don't know if you guys are familiar but that is like the biggest you know it's uh, unhoused population here in California I think actually possibly in the whole United States so we go tent to tent okay. we travel tent to tent we have food on Sundays, we have food and hygiene and tents and whatever whatever we, we can get. We move in a big, big line with volunteers, and um, it's really great. On, and then on Saturdays, I have a special team that we just do, the sex worker population. Good on. 
Um, and we do bad date lists, which, um, okay. yeah, we've been doing bad date lists, which is, if anyone doesn't know what that is, that's just, you know, taking down names, cars, pick, you know, what they look like of men that are assaulting and raping and, you know, all the things. I mean, there's people that drive through Skid Row with BB guns and shoot at wow. unhoused people just for sport. And there are people that drive there specifically to try and assault sex workers. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's important that we empower that. That's mainly the thing for me is that I think some people see harm reduction as like, it's not, I'm not trying to save anybody Mm -hmm. and I'm really help is not even the right word. I'm, I'm trying and empowering them to have as much, you know, safety and, you know, agency as they, as human beings deserve that yeah. inherently born with. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, I wanted to ask you about the concept of stigma, um, and why combating stigma is like an important piece of harm reduction and how that informs your work. Yeah. I mean, so there's two stigmas that I that I come across, and that is the stigma from the outside world, right? The stigma from, you know, your average neighbor, from, you know, people who believe that people who use drugs are lazy or losers or it's a choice or, um, you know, all of that. And then there's the stigma inside the recovery community. Um, and that I find to be the most harmful because I really feel like the recovery community should be the safest place for someone to come and say, you know, I'm not sure if I'm ready to stop, but I do know that I want to take a little better care of myself. And that little like seed of kindness goes so much further than trying to shame or coerce or force somebody into doing what we think is right. Um, and so, yeah, you know, the stigma, there's so many stigmas about sex work and about people who use drugs and about people who live on the streets. Um, and nobody wants to take into consideration all the things that bring us there, Uh you know, um, all the situations that, that lead up to that, um, where they just want to look at the, like the outside, Uh you know, um, and so edu- for me, an activist's most important t- tool is education, is just really be- being willing to educate and, and try to get the message out there so that hopefully somebody, you know, one person at a time opens up their heart to see, <clears throat> to see all the factors that play into why someone is on the streets, why someone is using drugs to the point that I was, because people use drugs in all different levels. Uh-huh. Like there are people that use drugs recreationally and have zero, zero issue. Mm-hmm. For me, I come from a trauma background. So I've never met a way to escape myself that I did not love to destruction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's just my truth. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No matter what it is, if I find a way to not feel how it feels to be in my own skin, I will use that until the wheels fall off and then put the wheels back on and keep going. Like I ride till the fucking sun comes up, down, up, down. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, um, in, it's interesting, like, you know, stigma, like, it really, like, reduces people to, like, this one sort of 
flat stereotype or like this one this one story about them you know and like you know I think a lot of the work that you're doing um is about like rehumanizing people and like allowing people to have complex full lives and stories um and I think that with the stigma thing it's like if we reduce someone to that two-dimensional stereotype it becomes easier to like commit violence against them and it and it also becomes easier to like look the other way or to like sort of condone like the massive neglect and violence that these people experience because we're not thinking of them as people like we're encouraged to dehumanize um drug users and so yeah i think that that's like such important work that you're like reminding people to like look at the whole person yeah, yeah you know i i just shared today about um which i don't even know why i do this i think i, I said this earlier about social media social media is the most dysregulating environment for yeah. me like i don't know what, what i'm doing Sometimes I go, why am I posting? But um, I shared about before and afters, right? So, yeah. um, you know, I've done a lot of before and afters in my time. And, you know, I've had I've had them shared in like around the world and I've been humiliated. They have my face on faces of meth and like wow. all these things, right? And I thought that's something you're supposed to do, okay? Like show how, how bad it was and how good I am, mm -hmm. right? And so... What I'm really, again, like what I was saying about how I change and things change for me, what I'm really, my heart is really feeling is that I want to, I want to really do away with that because I feel like all that's doing is again, dehumanizing who I was mm -hmm. versus now I've, I've managed to reach some acceptable level of wellness, right? Yeah you know, the wellness industry and, and a lot of the addiction treatment industry and all the industries are shame culture. Mm -hmm. It's about, you know, demanding and pressuring you to be a certain way um, because you have fear of then being excluded, right? Mm -hmm. And so I played along with that, even in wellness, even in recovery, even in, you know, and I did all the things and I thought, I thought humiliating who I used to be was part of the deal. Yeah. And I don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. On who I was is who I am. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, on your blog, you talk about compassion as the antidote to shame. Um, yes. Why is shame so dangerous and, and how does compassion disrupt it? Good question. Woo. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, shame, I think people, uh, people get the, the idea or maybe the mis interpretation that shame is guilt, right? Like mm -hmm. shame is feeling bad about something, but shame is like a cancer in who you are that believes you are bad and not just bad. Like, you know, I grew up in shame. Like I, I think from the moment I was, I was born into shame, right? Mm -hmm. I was born into a house of abuse. And from the very first memories, I always was shown and told that I was not meant to exist in this world you know, I was not lovable. And so that carries on and it will infect everything you do. Not just, not just, you know, behaviors that maybe are harmful. It's in your joy. It's in your recovery. It's in your parenting. It's in your relationships. Mm -hmm. It's in how you look in the mirror. And so a lot of what we do perpetuates the shame cycle in the name of wellness, right? Yeah. So we want to, as soon as we lose weight, then we still, and then we get a little applause from the outside world. Then we think that makes mm -hmm. it better. 
Um, or once we get sober or we get a house or we get a boyfriend or a girlfriend or, you know, we get a car, we get the things that society tells us is the measure of our worth. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we think that makes us feel better now, but, but shame, like I said, is a cancer. It is still there. It will never be enough until we are able to look back at all the phases and find compassion for, and how each drug saved my life. Mm-hmm. Like there's no question it's, they saved my life. I was completely suicidal at 12. I it's like really scary when I think about how close and I was planning and how close I was. Mm-hmm. And so drugs actually help a lot of people who are consumed with trauma before they have any other means. And yeah. I had no other resources. I had no yeah. support system. Um, And so instead of looking at it as like, oh, this bad decision or these bad things, I really look at it like, hey, this is like something really, I'm really proud of everything I've managed to grasp to keep myself here, yeah, to keep myself alive. Like we are wired for survival. And although I don't think survival mode is like the best way that we have to live forever, it should never be discarded. And so you know, no matter what I did and no matter what achievements I had, no matter when I got out of prison or when I, you know, discharged my parole, you know, my parole, or I still felt so much shame, all these achievements I made, I still felt so much shame Mm -hmm. because I still was trying to compete with what society told me was good Mm -hmm. and what society tells me is bad. Mm -hmm. And so I threw all that shit out the window and decided it's all honorable, all of it. Yeah. And so that's what I do, you know, with people is just, um, really encourage them instead of, you know, posting these pictures or these things about how bad they used to be and how good they are. Now they've always been good. People are born good. Yeah. I think that's (laughs) so, I think that's so beautiful and so like revolutionary and needed, like, because yeah, like this idea of like people desperately trying to earn something that is just like inherently ours, right? That like, mm-hmm. you know, you get that for being a human being, like it's not something that you earn, it's something that is yours, you know, um, inherently. And I think you're super right that a lot of sort of recovery narratives can unfortunately like reproduce this like false thing that that tells people that like, you know, what, what gives them that, that right to kindness or that right to consideration or that right to like basic human dignity and worth and community and like joy and life is like, whatever, that they earned it by like becoming well enough or like whatever it is. Right. Um, when in fact it's like every fucking person deserves that, um, just, just for simply being here. Existing. Yep. Just for existing. Yeah. And I think, I think that reframe is so, is so powerful and important. And like, I don't know, it reminds me of like, when I was like in pretty early recovery, I was in some trauma group and they were talking about shame and their idea of like, I was a little bit of a, a know-it-all like <laughs> right, right from the, the beginning in, in my recovery. Cause I could tell that they were like kind of full of shit because they were like, you know, their, their antidote to shame was like to think about accomplishments, to think about achievements, you know? And, and I was like, well, what about like drunk Clementine who's like screaming on the street? Like, you know, like what if I'm that tomorrow? Like, does that Clementine not deserve that kind of compassion that we're trying to develop here? Or is that just for this Clementine who's like sober, you know? And like, I'm glad that I had that intuition, but unfortunately Mm. it's like, it's not something that is sort of like the main approach and it's not something that is 
um, offer. And it creates this like us and them mentality that also, like we were saying earlier, like reproduces this kind of um, permission to treat people who are there like shit, which is like super um, not helpful. So I really appreciate yeah, if that. You, if you separate who you are now from who you were then, then how you see other people who are in the position of how you were then is going to change. Yeah. You're always going to see a separation and a difference and a hierarchy and a superiority. And I, you know, it's, and I did that. I fucking did that for the first several years of my recovery. I did that. I did exactly what I thought I was supposed to do and exact, but yeah, like you said, you know, saying that to combat shame is a thing of your achievements is actually still shame based. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess another like important principle or like framework within harm reduction along with compassion is the concept of autonomy. So we just wanted to ask like, why do you think that respecting people's autonomy is such a fundamental important part of harm reduction? Well, I think multiple reasons. I mean, I think all people deserve autonomy whether they use drugs or not. I mean, Mm -hmm. people actually know Believe it or not, people actually know what's best for them. And when we take away someone's autonomy and say that what we're saying is we know what's better for you. Yeah. You know, we know what you need and we know how to fix you. And I, and I don't know why we want to fix people so much and why we just don't want to support and love people how they are. And when you do that, people figure out who they really are on their own and really decide you know, who they want to be or whatever it happens to be, if they want to use drugs or not. And so autonomy really gives people the rights, you know, like we take people's rights, human rights away because we don't agree with their behavior. I mean, think about that. Think about how big that is. Like, and this is like, okay. It's like completely okay. And voted on and like passed in legislation that we take human beings rights to housing, to work, to respect, to freedom, to all this away, Uh because we do not agree with how they are existing. Yeah. It's fucking insane to me. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, you know, autonomy, autonomy runs through all harm reduction. It runs through all social justice work, you know, it's just that, you know, everybody has a right to decide for themselves how they want to live and how they want to be. You know, as long as obviously, I think people assume that we t- that compassion means or autonomy means that we just think everybody should just do whatever they want and like go around and stab people, or we should just, you know, r- you know, steal cars and say, "Well, I have compassion for myself, so I'm just going to steal a car tomorrow." Right. I mean, it's not about that. Compassion actually breeds responsibility. Yes, and it actually brings forth momentum and and all the other things and same with autonomy you know but when you strip someone of what their rights are you're stripping them of their humanity and when you strip someone of their humanity then don't be freaking shocked when they act like they are animals (laughs) don't be shocked when they act completely against everything because you stripped them of everything that they absolutely deserve to have yeah it's an interesting cycle because it's like we know that trauma produces violent behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, And we know that, you know, forcing someone like, you know, 
controlling someone against their will is like traumatizing. And so we think that we can control people against their will and force them. And then they're traumatized by that. And then as soon as they get away from that control, like, what are they going to do? Like, they're going to do the things that traumatized people do, which is all sorts of crazy things, you know? Yeah. It's just like a, a terrible cycle. So, yeah. It is. It really is. I don't know where we got the idea that when someone's in pain, we have to make them feel worse first. And that's supposed to help them make better choices. I, I don't know where where that came from. Yeah. Just another, backwards. Another principle of harm reduction is the idea that people are doing the best they can with what they have, you know, um, and that we should meet people where they're at. Um, what does that look like for you in your work? Um, you know, I, I meet, obviously, being, I service the unhoused population. So I meet people exactly where they're at. Um, and I think that means there's a lot of agendas when it comes, and I say wellness because I don't, I, I really don't even want to frame it in just the addiction recovery mm-hmm. world. It's in, it's in the psychology, you know, psychology, it's in, you know, all of it, all the wellness, you know, arenas is that we approach people with this agenda that we want them to go a certain direction in order for us to be comfortable with how they are existing. It's not about the other person's comfort. It's about our comfort. Mm -hmm. Why does it, what we need to be looking at is why does it make you so uncomfortable to see someone existing in a way that maybe you wouldn't like, why is that so disruptive to your own personal life to allow people and support people the best to live the best way that they can. Like I'm an, okay. I practice abstinence. Okay. Mm -hmm. For me, it works. But now for me to then project my abstinence onto other people or project my addiction story onto other people's substance use is so fucking dangerous. Um, and, and I did that too in the beginning. I mean, yeah. I, I'm honest. I did that too in the beginning where if mm-hmm. I saw someone that was using drugs, I assumed automatically I took my story, put it on them. And, you know, everybody is different. Everybody is so different. And so I really, I do not ever, ever say you need to stop using drugs. You need to stop sex work. You need to get off the streets. You need to leave your gang. Never, ever, 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 mm-hmm. never, because I love them just the way that they are. Mm-hmm. And I'm here to remove the best I can, remove the obstacles that have been placed in their way to destroy their lives. Because that's really what is happening is that we want to get rid of these people. And we're doing everything possible legislatively, in policies, in, in you know, criminalization, in all of it. We're doing everything possible to sweep them under the rug somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not really look at the real reason why this is all happening. You know, when I talk to people and I hear their stories, mm-hmm. <laughs> people are drinking all day long because of how stressful COVID is. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. That's totally acceptable. We can post about it on Facebook and on Instagram. Right. That's funny and it's hilarious. And you know, everybody's doing it right. But you're talking about people who have rapes and living on the streets and come from broken homes and prison and you know all the things and we want to crucify them mm-hmm. for using drugs to survive that yeah i mean it's just not right it's just backwards it's totally backwards 
Yeah. Yeah. It's absurd. It uh, is. Yeah. Okay. And I don't know, for me, like I, I, I work in a very similar line of work as you. Um, and yeah, I don't know, for me, like I'm constantly reminded that like these principles of meeting people where they're at and knowing that people deserve automatically mm -hmm. um, support and, and like a functioning community and a functioning infrastructure to support them. Um, that knowledge is the same place that my, my socialism comes from. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm like, literally everyone deserves all the things that they need and it is obscene that they don't have it. Um, and we have to like, not just as socialists, but as human beings, we need to be like totally committed to trying to get people everything that they need, you know, regardless of how they act or like what they've done or anything like that, you mm -hmm. know, that doesn't fucking matter. That doesn't, none of that changes the fact that everyone is entitled to those things automatically, you know? Um, and I think, yeah, for me, that's like the, the deep basis of like my leftism and it's, um, yeah, I don't know. It's always astonishing to me that there are people who, you know, profess to believe in, in socialist principles, but like, don't want to meet people where they're at. Um, mm. and yeah, because I just, I'm, I'm like, I don't know. I think you, maybe you, you got your socialism out of like a right. book, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally. Social yeah. media socialism. Yeah, and well, it's, it. it's interesting because it's like, <laughs> I don't know, like with what you were saying about about shame and like this this sort of idea that like we have to earn it, right? It's like if we if we treat other people like this, it goes back to the same thing you were saying. Like if we treat other people like this, like we're secretly treating ourselves this way, right? And I honestly think that like, you know, some of the bullshit that people say about homeless people is like they're like, you know, I work a job and I have to work a shitty job and I have to do that to pay my rent. And I'm like, yo, buddy, you shouldn't have to actually. Like, none of us should. And that's the whole point. And, yeah. and watching this person suffer and having no compassion for them because they don't even have a, a place to go is not, is not actually you saying fuck you to your boss. It's you saying fuck you or to your landlord. It's you saying fuck you to this person who's suffering. And it's like, it's such mm -hmm. misplaced, you know, and it's like, we all deserve it. And I think it works. In, like you said, like, when we're able to extend that compassion to ourselves and to be like, actually, I don't have to earn it. You know, I'm inherently worthy. I inherently mm -hmm. deserve all of these things because I'm a human being. Then it becomes easier to like start extending that to others. And it's kind of like a feedback loop. Cause I think when we extend it to others, it also becomes easier to extend it to ourselves. Um, oh, yeah. So I think that actually leads us really well into the, the next question, which is, um, do you see the principles of harm reduction as having importance um, outside of the context of drug use and sex work and sex work. Yeah. Just like in other contexts in, in life. Yeah. I think, I think the principles I don't feel like you might say yes. <laughs> yeah. These are kind of leading questions. Cause we are like, we know that you're going to say yes, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> Want to hear about it. What if I was like, no, I don't. <laughs> That'd be really weird. Like, you guys are like uh, okay. I guess we're done now. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I mean, I do. I think, you know, everyone should be the primary agent in living the best life that they can and that they want to. That, I mean, the, the principles of harm reduction are, should be the principles of life. And just, and it's the same too, like when we were talking earlier about, you know, recovery and the 12 steps and 
Um, whatever rec- recovery someone is doing is wonderful, but you know, I came from the 12 steps as well. Mm-hmm. And so you get these principles, right. Or the foundation of it. And you realize that like, everybody should do this. Like, yeah. even if you never drink, even if you never used, you know, yeah. that there it's good, good humanity, mm-hmm. right. It's just, you know, to be self-aware and aware of other people and, you know, to really like, do your best to exist in the world and not, you know, cause destruction and hopefully, you know, support people on their journeys. You know, Mm -hmm. like I said earlier, I did not get sober to fucking sit around and impress other sober people. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think that's the the deal. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think that, you know, my life, I don't know how I'm here alive, but I sure the fuck know that I'm not here to just sit around and play, you know, hanky panky with a bunch of other sober people and say, who's doing better. Uh Like I'm here to fight for other people. I'm here to fight for the way I was treated when I wasn't sober. Uh I'm here to change that for other people. And so, yeah, in, in life in general, we should be respecting all people's different ways of life, whether that be that you're gay or you're poly or you're, you know, whatever it is that you happen to be doing, like why religion is so not to get on this tangent, but let's get on this tangent. (laughs) So religion, you know, is so ingrained in, 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 in this world, right? It's that the morality issue and people hold morality over drug use and, you know, and all the things. Right. And so we feel this like entitlement to condemn people for the way that they want to live. And all you're doing is proving that they are unsafe to exist. And so it keeps you in the darkness. And then when you're in the darkness, that's when shit happens. You know, that's when things become unsafe. Things are not unsafe in the light. Uh They're not. They're unsafe when you're, when you, you know, condemn people and, you know, say that they're sinning or, or whatever it happens to be. Uh, yeah, I could go on and on about religion, but yeah, I come from a super strict religious, I mean, I was raised in a religious cult and, um, you know, so I, that was a huge part of my shame was Uh that, you know, I could never, everything I did was a sin. I was going to hell for it, you know, and you can't beat that, you know, you can't, you can't human nature is not perfect. So to be told you're going to hell for everything, you know, and then you, you grow up and you have, you know, different sexuality or you have, you know, other things going on. And then you just constantly feel like you're a terrible person and you can't do anything right. And you're going to hell, like destroys people's lives. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's fucking intense. It's intense. Yeah. The religious, the religion conversation is intense, but it's, it's, it's permeates through um, the justice yeah. system, through legislation, through all of it. It just reeks of old school religion. Yeah. And I mean, this is a bit of a, I mean, maybe I'll just say it because then we'll lead into the next question. But <laughs> I mean, we've commented also on how that moralization also plays out in social justice cultures through cancel culture and this like mm-hmm. incredible shaming and, and condemnation of people Um it's weirdly like it weirdly has like a christian flavor to it um oh yeah it parallels like american protestantism like really yep. fucking yeah. hard um yeah so i mean yeah like on this podcast one of the things we talk about is cancel culture as you might have might have guessed <laughs> um and in the context of cancel culture like people are, are forever defined by their mistakes right like by the worst thing they've ever done 
um, even really minor mistakes sometimes, um, not even the worst thing they've ever done. Um, and for people with trauma or addiction backgrounds, you know, like sometimes the mistakes we made were, let's say, like more dramatic than most people's. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, they might be kind of hanging over our heads and cancel culture offers like no compassion um, or escape from them. I mean, I guess it's a bit of an open-ended question, but do you have any thoughts about this, like given <laughs> you and that you also hate social media? <laughs> Oh, yeah. So I do. I think that I feel like cancel culture is rooted in religion and that, you know, I, that's ultimately the ultimate cancellation is being told you're going to hell and, and, is, and uh -huh. being, you know, um, cast out from the only thing that you thought was right out of your church or whatever, you know, um, and I went through a lot of that. I went through a lot of that as, you know, a bisexual woman, you know, I was, I just, yeah, could go on and on, but, um, yeah, I think for one living, you know, cancel culture is shame culture, right? It's all about shaming and, um, you know, fear, fear-based demanding that people behave a certain way. And then you, and then you try, you try, let's say you try to abide by cancel culture and you make one, you, you live on this tightrope, right? You're living on this tightrope that if you make one little veer off the right or the left, that you're next to be canceled. Mm -hmm. That is so fucking bad for you. That's so oh, bad. So for fucking like, bad yeah. It gives me anxiety just seeing that when you guys sent me the email and it said fucking cancel, <laughs> you know? Because I'm like, I, I honestly, and I've experienced cancel culture in, in my life in, on a smaller scale, obviously, in a, I mean, people do it on just ginormous, ginormous man hunts and witch hunts and whatever, but on a smaller scale, um, covert, the covert canceling mm -hmm. where they talk amongst themselves in their own community and start unfollowing mm -hmm. and sending DMs and hateful stuff and, and no longer inviting you to things that you were once invited to. Um, and it just, you know, I really, I, 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 I did. So being a, you know, a rape survivor and a sexual abuse survivor, I, I really felt, I think, I think part of my healing process was to co-sign canceling abusers, right? I think that is part of my, I mean, it is part of my journey is that I really felt that, mm -hmm. that we should go after them, take everything that means anything to them and punish, right? And punish. Mm -hmm. um, and so again, it's taken me some time and like some healing work and to really look into everything and realize that, dude, that's not going to heal anything. Mm -hmm. Like, like that's not going to support any change whatsoever. It just makes things worse. Mm -hmm. to take, you know, everything that anybody has or their respect or their, you know, money or however cancel culture, whatever they want to go for, mm -hmm. um, whatever title you have or job or relationships. Um, yeah. I mean, the un unhoused people I work, they're all canceled. They're all canceled from society, from society. They've all been kept in this one area, which is called Skid Row. And they are literally just blocked off blocks are blocked off and they need to stay there and if somebody gets out of jail or prison or out of you know a mental institution they're dropped off in skid row they want you to stay right there like like that's the cancel cancel community um mm -hmm. that's like the big 
you know, the big picture of when you're canceled by straight up everybody in the world, like yeah. doesn't want you anymore. Um, and yeah, I, I have definitely been through and still actually, I still sometimes get nervous about what I'm going to share, what I'm going to say. And I feel like I need to tiptoe and make sure I say the right word or, um, because I know there are people out there watching me, you know, that, that really don't like what I have to say. They don't like what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm not, I am no longer conforming to what they believe is right. And so they want to take me out. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting to me because it's like, I mean, you know, people who have lived real crazy lives, you know, you know, may not actually be in a position to worry about Instagram drama because they're right. they're living crazy lives. But if you, you know, people like us who have kind of had a crazy life and then and then our lives changed, you know, it's it's a weird experience where you have that past kind of like hanging over your head, right? And we we're in these social justice communities where, you know, we say we care about people who who are really marginalized by society and are living really hard lives. Um, but I remember when I got sober, honestly, man, like it kind of made me suicidal because I I'm queer. And so like I immediately ended up in social justice culture, right? And when I was in social justice culture and I saw the way that we treated people who like tweeted something wrong I was like Mm -hmm. yo like what are they gonna do when they find out about the shit that I did you know like (laughs) right Right. like like the actual shit like like real shit yeah like actual shit that real shit that happens when your life is all crazy you know and Mm -hmm. and and so I don't know I think it's like a really interesting sort of um to think about because it's like when people have lived you know I don't know like it's really popular for example right now in social justice culture to be an abolitionist right Mm -hmm. um but then you know so we want to be an abolitionist and like offer compassion to like you know people who have been to prison but we want to cancel people for like twitter shit you know Um, (laughs) right it's like really absurd it's like where you're, I think it feels like you're building, they're building their own rules. They're building their own system, right? Like, so it's popular to fight for abolition of the prison system, right? So that's like, a, that's like a trendy thing to be in support of, right? But, but at the same time, you know, Joe, Bobby, Susie over here, who maybe said, you know, in 1999, that, you know, something about black people, then we're going to fucking dig up their Facebook posts from yeah. when they were in high school and blast it and repost it and stuff. Like you, you don't understand. Like when you're talking about the, you know, abolishing the prison system, you're talking about real stuff. You're talking yeah. about real, not a fucking mistake in a word or mistaken. Like I said, I've changed. Like I, I think about what if somebody wants to dig up, you know, I don't know my shit about how I felt about, you know, people that abuse children about, you know, I believe that, you know, certain ways at one time where you should just fucking see something, say, call the police, you know, insert child services. You know, I believe that was the answer because that's, that's, that's not what happened to me. No one ever came to help me. So I thought if someone, maybe that's what I was missing in my life. Right. But I had to really educate myself to see that that's actually destroys lives as well is the fucking foster care system and all the shit that goes on there and there's a better way to heal families but you know what if somebody wanted to dig up that you know it's like why we're living in a heightened state of like hypervigilance yeah yeah for sure which is so fucking traumatizing for people it's like terrible 
Yeah. Or honestly, like anybody who's living on the street and using drugs and alcohol heavily, like does like 17 things a day that are like cancelable. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, fuck. Like, yes. I mean, I, I take care. I, you know, I have, you know, friends and I call them friends. They are my friends. I mean, I prefer the people on the streets, to be honest, um, that, you know, have women and you know, they manage other women on the streets and they're not very nice to them. They're really not. But survival is survival, right? There's certain rules on the streets that people have to adopt in order to survive. I did, yeah. you know, and I have people say to me sometimes, I talk about felon, felonies and, you know, what that's done to my life um, and other people's lives. And they'll, they'll not know that I'm a felon and they'll be like, well, I understand they don't trust felons. I'm like, well, do you trust me? Cause I'm a felon. Like you're sitting here. You always like pr- pr- praise all my staff and send mm-hmm. me loving messages. I'm a felon. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we just see these certain things and decide that those are the things we're not going to support. And this will support. And they pick and choose based off of like old school religion you know, of what is acceptable and what is not and what, you know, what is moral and what is not. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's weird. It's a weird, there's just so much shame. It's just like shame is just growing in this whole entire, not just social media, but just in life in general. It's like people are just consumed more and more with shame. And I don't know how to stop that. I just, I do my best in my own little streets and my own little, you know, and I, and, and I hope that it trickles out somehow. I mean, I think you're doing an amazing job, which is why we wanted you on the pod, right? Yeah. Like oh, you really, thanks. you really embody like an ethic of compassion and like unconditional positive regard for human beings. Right. And I think if, if more people adopted that, I think that we would see a lot of change. Um, so um, I think it's this conversation, like it, it flows nicely into the next question, which is kind of a loaded question. Um, but let's see what, what, what you want to give us for this. Um, so basically like cancel culture does this thing of dividing people into good and bad. Um, and then it creates a false binary as well between like abuser and survivor. Right. So like we have these ideas that like there's good guys and bad guys and there's, you know, scary, bad abusers that we need to punish. And then there's like survivors who we need to like listen to and believe and support. Um, and so, you know, I think it's already come out in the conversation that things are a bit more complicated than that. So what do you think, um, harm reduction and the principles of harm reduction might be able to offer us, um, to help us to see the world in a more realistic and compassionate way? Harm reduction is about seeing, you know, drug use and, and other, uh, you know, other behaviors is like a multiple multifaceted issue, right? So it's about seeing the bigger picture and, and everything that, you know, has, has played into why these things are happen happening. And so I feel like as far as seeing people as good and bad, that that's the answer there is to actually see that nobody's really good or bad, that people are all just human beings and we all have past traumas everyone has past traumas of some level, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead of saying, well, you're bad for doing this, especially when it comes to abuse. And I get, I get that there's a lot of feelings about that, right? Yeah. Because especially if you're an abuse survivor, I get yeah. that. I, you know, um, but when you say you support survivors, what that really 
needs to mean is that you support all survivors Mm -hmm. and somebody that has a history of abusing women or abusing, you know, trans or abusing, you know, children or whatever, they too are also survivors most of the time. I mean, it's very rare. And so if we just decide, pick and choose which survivors we want to support, we're going to continue on and they're going to continue to abuse other people. It's just going to continue in this vicious cycle. Like the only way, and this is going to sound maybe strange, but is to have compassion for people who abuse. Yeah. Because in that compassion, then they start to see themselves with compassion. And then they start to look, maybe want to dig back and find out where this is coming from. And then we can stop the cycle. Like we talk a lot about breaking cycles, right? Like, you know, coming in and, and you don't break cycles by canceling. Yeah. Like that doesn't by by ostracizing people, by shaming people, by removing people from your vision or your friend's vision or whatever job, whatever they manage to have in their life by yeah. completely disowning them doesn't break a cycle. It actually yeah. perpetuates a cycle. It actually makes a cycle worse. Yeah. Um, and so I know that's difficult. And I guess there's, a, I guess it's, um, you do better at it at saying okay like I'm not super great with like my like I feel like I need to go now take a class because you guys have been really great with like all your language like your vocabulary is really great and I'm just kind of like yeah people who use drugs no no I feel I am because I feel like like people who use drugs are cool I love them and you guys are like (laughs) yeah and then in social justice and then I was in this realm and this you know and I'm like fuck I feel like Anyways, no. there's no, my like, shame story, right? Yeah. Drugs are really cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's about all I can say. Um, but you know what I'm saying. It's delicate. It's a delicate thing to say, hey, guess what, guys? People who abuse. And I, I actually want to stop from saying abusers. Yeah, yeah. That's another language that I've adopted that I, you know, and I, my language is always changing is I really don't like that. Cause I don't even call people, I really don't, I don't call people addicts or bulimics or yeah. any of that. So their pe- person first language is important to me. So it's interesting that I've held on to abusers, mm-hmm. people who have abused, <laughs> how's that? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I get that it's really hard and delicate to say, hey, guess what, that they actually, especially to another survivor who's been through so much, you know, um, with that person. But really, the ultimate goal should not be punishment. The ultimate goal should be some sort of heal- community healing. Yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know, I relate a lot to what you you share. And I, I really appreciate, honestly, you're you have so you're offering so much to the pod. So seriously, you're doing great. <laughs> oh, but okay, thanks. Um, like, <laughs> I really appreciate one of the things that you bring that I think is beautiful is like your transparency, like about your process. Right. And you're talking about like the different stages that you've been through. Like you weren't born, you know, just thinking all the things that you think, like you're constantly changing. Right. And like, you know, talking about being someone who did used to have like a really punitive view of people who Mm -hmm. have been abusive. Like, you know, I also share that, like I'm a survivor too. And like, my life was like totally profoundly shaped from having complex PTSD and being all crazy and like everything that happened to me. Right. And so like, of course I, I felt that way. And like, it's like with the shaming, right. Like if we want to have this like radical ethic of like, you know, totally uprooting shame, that also means we don't shame ourselves for like having those 
those yeah. responses because those are normal responses to have. Like it makes sense to sort of want to be like, I want there to be a bad guy that I can blame and a simple way to solve all of this. Right. And, and if it were that simple to just be like, you know, we can just punish this, this person and then it's going to be okay. Like, like I get why that's appealing, you know, but yeah. then of course, when we peel back layers, it always tends to be more complicated. And like, you know, we know, and like, you know, from the work that you do and like the life that you've had that like, some of the people who are caught up in the most crazy cycles of violence, who are the mm -hmm. most abusive, who are like, who are doing shit that like in social justice, like Twitter land, people would totally like lose their minds to even imagine like yeah. actual violent shit are yeah. often, if you sit down and talk to them 99.999% of the time, what happened in their childhood, you know? Yep. Oh some, yeah. Some real fucked up shit happened in their childhood, you know? And so those are survivors. And so believing survivors, supporting survivors means believing and supporting those people and that's complicated because it also means like intervening on violence you know mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean condemning the human beings um who are enacting that violence so yeah we we you know i and i come up on a lot of violence obviously in, in the in that environment i mean that environment without violence i mean that's how it thrives, to be honest. Violence, you know, perpetuates violence and you can't have violence without more violence. I mean, it's just the way it is, right? Yeah. Um, and so one thing I, and I believe, and I would hope any harm reductionist never does, we never call the police. So we always, you know, have de-escalation, you know, we always de-escalate the thing. And it's amazing when you sit down and give someone food or water, or just sit on a curb with someone and listen, how much that people need to be heard. Mm -hmm. And when they're not heard, they resort to other things. Like, I know I get my neighbor next door, your neighbor, maybe they don't get that because they've never had that because they've never been completely abandoned and just deserted, mm -hmm. like deserted and in every sense in healthcare and food and, and shelter and clothing and toilet paper and toilets in all senses of the word, they are completely cut off in every sense. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're not heard at all. And so they, they want, they try to be heard in other ways, you know? And so sitting and listening to someone does so much more and listening without an agenda, mm -hmm. without saying like harm reduction is not what it, what it is not is given out as a way to encourage absence. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with that. Like many people through the harm reduction process yeah. do become abstinent. That's wonderful, but it is never on the agenda. It is never placed. Absence is never placed above giving, you know, getting a new needle. Never, ever, ever, ever. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I just go and we go and I just, you know, I, I have a, a few, I'm kind of a manager. <laughs> I have to work on my man hating. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, you know, but I have, and I was going to say, I have a few men I really love. And it's like, why am I saying it like that? But there's, you know, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Um, but a few of the participants that I'm the closest with are actually men who do treat women quite abusively. And I've sat and talked and it's like, whoa, if you listen to their childhood and you listen to how their mother was and what happened there, it's like, it all just makes sense. And the compassion comes and the empathy comes. And it's like, that's how you open your eyes to seeing the humanity in people again, mm -hmm. you know, to seeing past their conditions and circumstances and see like, 
truly there's nothing different between him and I, like we are the same. Yeah. Uh Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I don't know. There's this, there's this saying that, you know, a society is really only as good as like, as how it treats its least well-treated members. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. um, and often that's applied to, you know, like these identity categories of like race and gender and sexuality and so forth. And that, that makes sense. But um, also working in a similar field, I have really come to see that the unhoused population in particular is literally like the most um, stigmatized, marginalized in every sense of the word and victimized um, and, and most poorly treated segment of the population mm-hmm. to the point where they are like invisible um, forcibly invisibilized actually uh-huh. you know um, not seen as human uh-huh. um, like completely disposable um, in every sense of the word and um, yeah I I also am just like we and you know we live in a different country than you but I think it's the same kind of thing like we cannot pretend to be like a developed like country that respects the 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 rights of man um, when there are people living in such abject um, conditions for no fucking good reason you know nice. um yeah and uh i'm i'm really i'm really down with what you do i think it's really fucking awesome um Thank you. and yeah i mean speaking of which um you talk a lot about empowering these people and mm-hmm. and pretty much like all of the systems set up to quote-unquote help unhoused people and people who use drugs are focused on controlling them in one way or mm-hmm. another. And like, I run up against this too, you know, sometimes at work, like I'll give one example without giving too many details, but we just, we had a participant who had like a really bad wound, um, really infected, like badly, badly infected. Right. And this participant just refused to go to the hospital, just would mm-hmm. not seek medical attention, you know? And in sometimes in situations like that, you're just sort of like faced with this like horrible, um dilemma where you're like the only way for this person to not die of fucking like sepsis is Mm -hmm. to force them to seek medical attention you know because we've tried everything else um and it's just it's a brutal it's a brutal kind of calculus that you have to make um but yeah i just want to hear some more of your thoughts on sort of the merits of trying to empower people versus control them and like how control um fails at doing its job and how, I don't know, sometimes in our line of work, we have to sort of like um, exist within these frameworks that do use control, you know? Um, I don't know, I'm just, go for it. No, I I relate so much that to that example that you gave, because I also do wound care um, and see, I mean, horrific wounds, yeah. horrific. Yeah. And they don't, want to go to the hospital because the hospital treats them like shit uh-huh. yeah and they're not allowed to fucking drink they're not allowed to drink or, we, or so whatever yeah we do sometimes we are we have a hipaa you know form where they can actually sign over to us where we can really advocate for them but even if i go even if we one of us goes uh, as an advocate to speak up on behalf of them to really advocate for the care that they receive we have the hardest time getting them you know, for instance, it takes hours in the hospital, right? I mean, I, I mean, I'm talking horrific wounds, like life-threatening, gonna lose limbs type shit, right? Yeah. 
Otherwise we treat them ourselves. We do our best. Like we we're like wound care geeks, right? We're online, we're ordering stuff. I mean, I have a big old, you know, trauma bag and I got all this, you know, we do our best because I get it. I get it. The systems have let ever have let them down. The systems have arrested them while they're in the hospital. It's like someone comes in for care, life, life-threatening, life-altering care, and you're gonna ask them if they have warrants. Yeah. yeah. Like who gives a fuck? Yeah, it's truly. Fucked. It's fucked. Um, or you're going to have them sit there for six hours and you're not going to give them methadone or suboxone, right? And they're starting to have withdrawals and shit on themselves. Like I've been there. I've been there. Yeah. And I think that's another thing that's important is that harm reduction really is led by lived experience mainly. Mm-hmm. There are harm reductionists that are super, you know, book smart and maybe they didn't have the lived experience and they, they're wonderful too, but really harm reduction on the ground is led by people who use drugs and people with lived experience mm-hmm. and sex workers lead, you know, the, the sex worker, because that is really what it's about is that they deserve a voice. They have a voice and their voice is really where the answers are. People assume that people who use drugs or people who exist on the streets or people who exist in any other way than is the quote unquote main, you know, norm or mainstream that they don't know what's best for them, but they actually know the answers. Like they really know what they need first. It's the hierarchy of needs. Right. Yeah. And so at, we know our, what we need first. And for someone who uses drugs, their first need is to make sure they're not in withdrawal. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if you agree with that or not. This is the fucking reality. Yeah. If you're, if they are in withdrawal and they're going to leave, yeah. Then they can't yeah. even think straight to get water. They can't even think straight and survive that, you know, yeah. in order to see past, you know, you need a lot of space to have wellness, to even care about wellness. Yeah. And if you're suffering in withdrawal or you don't have a shelter or you don't have a toilet or toilet, you know, all these things that consumes all that space. And so you wonder why they're not taking steps to like get a job. Are you yeah. fucking kidding me? For sure, for sure. And like one thing that me and um that me and Clementine were talking about yesterday when we were like planning this interview, um, we were just talking about how often when there is this um this scenario where like all the available methods to help someone are based in control, right? It's because it's because infrastructure to empower people doesn't exist um and so hasn't not. even really been thought of, you know. And in, in our case, like in Montreal, the language that a lot of people speak who live on the street um, is Inuktitut, which is the language that Inuit people speak. And there are, there's probably like maybe like one doctor in like all of Quebec who speaks Inuktitut, you know? Mm. Um, like no one speaks these languages um, other than Inuit people and some workers who work with them. Um, and, and like practically no one in healthcare, you know? Um, I mean, maybe that maybe there's more than one doctor, you know, but definitely not a lot. And so it's like people can't even seek um, healthcare yeah. in in their own fucking language in their own fucking country. Uh, um, and it's, it's like really, it's really bad. And and yeah, and and Inuktitut is one of these languages that is actually like quite healthy. Like people speak it as their first language. Like yeah. you know what I mean? It's not um, it's not a language that's being like revived, you know. Um, right. And so English is their second language, and French is their third language, right? Yeah. And like we're in Quebec, where everything's in French. Um, but a lot of Inuit people don't really learn French. It, like if they do, it's like really basic, you know? 
um because it's just another colonial language yeah um anyways yeah so I don't know that wasn't a question but <laughs> no but, but you helped direct me because I was going on a tyrant about wound care but no you're so right because um in, in talking about the quote-unquote help that we want to offer people it is based in control like we have something called project room key I don't know if you guys have that where you guys are in Canada Mm-mm. but um project room key is basically this good Samaritan feel for all the, for, for all the guys up top to say, here, we're going to take a few of the motels or hotels and we're going to give, we're going to let um, the unhoused people go and, and live there. Right. We're going to let them, we're going to open up, it'll be temporary. We're going to you know, do their good deeds for the year. Right. Which is wonderful. Okay. That's wonderful that, that there are, I do have some participants in there right now. However, if you've ever been to a, if you've ever been on lockdown or a mental institution of some way or, or mm-hmm. 5150 or any of those, okay, you yes. will have experienced what Project Room Key is like. They have guards at every single wow. floor. Their doors are locked and they cannot open them with their own keys. They have, um, you know, uh, curfews. They can't, obviously, for sure, can't use drugs. So I, I go in and do some wound care on some, and I sneak new needles in, and we do an exchange. I mean, I'm like, you know, yeah. hey, I'm fucking whatever I got to do, because actually, you're not empowering people. You're no. just putting them in a different spot. Yeah. And giving them a bunch of rules where, again, they've lost their agency. Again, they've lost autonomy. Again, you're treating them like you're, they're in jail. Yeah. I mean, it's t- it's really, really awful and most of these housing projects and you know all these things they're all with those same rules and it's all with curfews and it's all with like rules about drugs or behavior or whatever um in the name of helping but but unhoused people don't need a home they need the systems fucking changed they -hmm. need the whole government torn down and start over Mm -hmm. they don't need a home for six weeks that's not gonna fucking do it yeah and they definitely don't it's need just, like a fucking curfew. Like, no, like they're yeah. children, like yeah. they are children, you know? Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's bad. And the mental health situation is, is extreme. Um, and I'm sure you see that, you know, in your, in your area as well. It's like, you know, um, I just, it's very difficult sometimes because the very last thing we ever want to do is to ever commit someone. Mm-hmm. Um, is to ever call the police or ever call anybody like that. Is we do our best to empower them just as they are to the best of our, you know, their ability. Um, but yeah, we occasionally run into things where someone is severely harming themselves. I mean, you know, bashing their heads against cement and being yeah. raped and and abused and you know, lots of and occasionally we have to make a decision where you know we really have to step in. That this person is really unable to advocate for themselves at all. Yeah. Um, and it's it's heartbreaking because yeah, they're treated trash. like it's they're treated like trash, complete yeah. trash. Yeah. It's terrible. It's like in that hierarchy of needs thing, like I think people really fail to realize how much freedom is like a human need and how mm-hmm. fundamental it is. And I think with like COVID and everything, you know, regular people who have not had to have these experiences kind of got a bit of a taste of, uh, depending on where you live, of what it's like to have that, that oh, yeah. like a certain level of control into when you can go out and, and you know, staying in your house and stuff. And I mean, that's like, you know, in your own house, which is like quite nice, like compared to like, <laughs> if you're locked in an institution, right. And it's like the threat of incarceration, whether that be in jails or psych, 
psych incarceration is like such a huge barrier for people to access the help that they need. Because if they're looking at the hierarchy of needs and they're like, my need is to be free. And, you know, if I'm going to try to access some kind of care and it's going to take away my freedom, I'm not going to fucking access it, you know? And like for myself, like I literally like escaped out of like an emergency room when I woke up there just because I was like, yo, as soon as they figure out who I am, they're fucking forming me, you know? So I'm getting out, even though I had like, you know, a concussion and like needed medical attention, like it didn't matter. And like, yeah, I never got like, um, I never got trauma care, like trauma therapy or anything. Just right. I was too fucking afraid to talk to anyone because I was like, yeah. you guys always just lock me up, you know? And so, yeah, I really think that, you know, people really need to think about how terrifying that is to people. And like, you know, the idea that it might seem crazy to not seek help for something that is life-threatening, it's not that crazy when you understand what they're trying to avoid, you know, and how totally. terrifying, like what that consequence might be if they actually do get incarcerated for you know whatever so yeah yeah um, and most of them have tried over and over again they already have experience with what happens when they go try to seek help that supposedly exactly. all people right supposedly everybody has a right to get everybody has a right to you know go to the emergency room and you know receive treatment supposedly but yeah. i i see it even with us standing there even with an advocate standing there that they're absolutely just and and cruel it's it's intentional cruelty is what it is like intentional cruelty to try to punish someone who's already down and that's where i said why i said earlier it's like where do we get this idea that we see someone like that is at the most you know i don't know if vulnerable is the world word but at the most fragile state that anyone can be in is which is let's just say they're you know like unhoused trans um completely consume a trauma, mental health issues, and they're going to lose a limb, right? Yeah. That, and why do we see that person and think, I'm going to make them suffer more, and that's going to be how we're going to get them to crawl back and do things our way. I don't get that. I mean, honestly, it's really interesting because we had a guest on uh, one of our previous um, episodes who talks about this exact situation. Well, not this exact situation, but talks about this. And it's like all these different psychological um, tools that people use for victim blaming, essentially. Mm. Um, and one of them is basically just this, like, um, mm. basically being like, if, if that could happen to me, then that means I'm in fucking danger, which means that this could not happen to me, which means that it's your fault. Right. You right. Um, yeah, that's a good, that's important. And it's this, it's the stigmatization and dehumanization, right. Which it's mm-hmm. like separating, like othering another person, um, and then therefore blaming them for the circumstances that they're in, which is, yeah, quite disturbing. Um, it's that's important. What you just said is that you know it's that separate. It's like making them not no longer a human, an actual object, or you know something so that you can never ever feel afraid that that might happen to you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think like California is probably a bit like this too, because California is kind of like quote unquote liberal. Um, but you know, Canada is the sort of like liberal stronghold of like North America or whatever, and. I think that it threatens a lot of nice liberals to think of the fact that like maybe this is happening to people and it's not their fucking fault, you know? Yeah. Um, right. And and like it, it literally like threatens their entire worldview to accept that. So it must be their fucking fault then, right? And because it's the same fucking thing, man. When I see um and I've I've done like hospital accompaniments with people too. And in Canada, we have fucking socialized healthcare. It's free. Everyone can be treated. There's no, you don't have to show them shit. Wow. You can walk in, you know. Um, but people are still refused treatment um because of the way they look or smell 
or whatever it is, you know what I mean? Or just because the experiences of like over um, anti-indigenous racism that they experience is so fucking crazy that they just walk out, you know? Uh-huh. Um, yeah, or or it's just like they're they're kicked out by virtue of having to wait for 14 hours yeah. because nobody wants to deal with them at this moment, you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, you can't, that's not gonna fly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, we should probably, uh, should probably get on to our next question. Yeah, yeah sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay, it's okay. I mean, lots to talk about. Um, yeah, sure. So this is actually the the last question and we kind of touched okay. on it a bit, but we wanted to, um, to give you a chance to speak on it directly. So I think it's just really important and I think that your, your work does a beautiful job of talking about this, but basically, yeah, so sobriety and harm reduction are often placed in, in opposition to each other. Um, and we don't, we, we don't think that they're in opposition, um, like Jay and I don't actually see or understand that framework. Um, but can you tell us about being a sober person who supports harm reduction and why you <laughs> those things as, as opposites? Uh, I just want to say first <laughs> that <laughs> it feels, <laughs> it feels very hopeful to have you guys be active in the 12 steps and feel that way. Like that makes me feel like hopeful um, because, you know, I, you know, I, I am, so I consider myself a member of the 12 step community. I got, I started off here. I'm, I'm still, I mean, I, I think it's a beautiful program. Um, I, I love the steps themselves. Um, but I have been, I don't know if canceled is the word, I canceled in a principles over personalities, a covert way, because it's not real, like, you know, right, you know, but um, on the down low, by my own community, because I am supposed to, as a recovery advocate, which I am not a recovery advocate, I am a autonomy advocate. Yeah. So, that includes recovery if you want it, but that includes, you know, but as a voice of somebody who has, you know, come out of addiction and has, you know, found healing and, and is sober today. Um, and I do share my story about that for some reason. Now I, I have to follow certain rules and I have to follow certain guidelines in order to go with the, uh, traditional recovery route, which is that, you cannot do any work on yourself until you become absent or you have no real voice here until you are absent or have a desire for abstinence or, you know, it works if it, if you work it and all the things. And I've, and I've, I've spoken a lot about how I feel that, you know, um, we need to incorporate trauma-informed care into addi- all addiction recovery. I uh-huh. feel like any addiction recovery without trauma-informed care and tr- you know trauma recovery mixed in is a fucking medical malpractice. I think it's bullshit because to you know recover from addiction. I mean, addiction in itself is a traumatic experience. Yeah. yeah. Let's let's take out all the trauma that most people have before, which is what led us to addiction, right? The experience itself of just addiction, even to, even let's just say you're in a nice house and mommy and daddy give you your medicine for your drug or your money for your drugs. And you don't ever have to do anything, you know, shady or criminal or whatever, but just not being able to function your human functions without having to take something, that type of control and that type of feeling of not being 
you know, having agency and having freedom is a traumatizing experience, oh, right? Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Then take that and all the trauma that people have that bring us there, right? Childhood stuff and, and, you know, bullying, whatever it happens to be. And then the trauma of recovery, right? So we also then, it is true. Healing can be traumatic, can re-traumatize, right? Because then we have to face all these things. And then you're in a room with people who say it's an outside issue if you talk about trauma or if you want to talk about those things or it works if you work it. So if you're still in pain and you're, then you must not be working the steps hard enough, but really actually you just need to advocate for yourself and go out and, and get more tools. You know, like I'm yeah. a firm believer in all the tools, all yeah. the things. Like yeah. I have a huge toolbox, you guys, like, you know, um, so I did, I kind of went on a tangent, but I, I did the thing where, you know, I said, as long as you know, you're ready and, and you have the willingness to get sober that I'm willing to then work with you or sponsor you or, um, but as soon as you mess up, you have to lose your days and you have to stand up in front of everyone and humiliate yourself. You know, there's a lot of humiliation I feel like in the name of wellness and all wellness that, you know, and I get it. And I think every recovery path has their right to do however they want to do and count their days or not count their days or believe in God or not believe in, you know, whatever it happens to be. Um, but when one owns monopoly or, or feels they own monopoly, that's mm-hmm. when it gets dangerous. Right. And I don't think it's the 12 steps themselves. It's, it's kind of like religion, right? So you have the Bible. Okay. People read the Bible, but as it travels down, these, these pe- men that are put on pedestals get to interpret the Bible and, right. and use it to whatever advantage they want. And it's the same, I believe with the big book or any type of thing is that, if you really read the book, yeah, there's nothing in there that says half the shit that is spewed right. out today. Nothing. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> nothing. Like, it's like, actually Clement- great. Clementine is such a big book thumper and can like quote like chapter <laughs> and fucking verse of the big book. Oh god. Um, at, no, at these fucking these people who you're talking about. You yeah, know, because just, like make shit up and pretend that it's like part of the. Program. Yeah, like I'll be like, what part of the book is that in? And also, it's it's like there's also safeguards against this kind of thing, right? Like even the concept of like principles before personalities. Like you know, so many of the principles, like enacting these principles in all of our affairs, is literally about like how do we treat people with respect? How do we treat people like live and let live? You know, it's all over the place, right? Live and let live. Like it's it's Bro. they put it on the wall, you know, and so. Yeah, like, I mean, I'm pretty good at, at kind of, like, <sighs> looking back at these people when it comes up and just being like, you know, is this something that you need to call your sponsor about? Is this something that you should pray about? Like, just, like, right. a, little, a little snarky, <laughs> but just kind of, like, you know, wh- where's all this resentment coming from? Like, maybe you need to do a fourth on it. Um, oh. <laughs> you I know? Right? Because I don't understand why people are so concerned with somebody else's past right and even in in the book like it does say like if people want to to drink and use like they should drink and use like it's not our job to control them right yeah and it also says if you um it it, like totally advocates for trying to seek therapy like outside of 12 steps as well it's like if you have like any sort of like issues that aren't aren't covered by what we're doing here get help for them like absolutely yeah you know um and yeah so anybody who's calling that an outside issue it's like yeah okay but like what the like you know yeah Yeah. I just yeah it's it's interesting it is absurd it's absurd and it's hard and I feel like it's harmful because really the 12 steps is the only free one of the only free options that there is and it's like available everywhere so 
And so when someone goes there and then they feel like they are less than because they're on Suboxone. I mean, that's a big NA thing. Yeah. I don't know if they do that in AA, but that's a big NA thing that Suboxone is not considered sober or it's not, now you can't start your days or you can't even share in a meeting. I mean, they fucking leave. I'd leave too. It's shitty. It's terrible. It's, you know, and I feel like what it is, is that there is a fear. So there's a fear about empowering people who to do as safely as possible what you yourself have now saved yourself from. It's like, a fee- I feel like it's more fear-based. It's that they're yeah. afraid that if they support harm reduction, then they're supporting something that goes against and invalidates their recovery. Not supporting another person is never invalidates your own self-worth yeah. or your own path ever, like ever, ever, ever. Like invalidating your sexuality does not invalidate mine. Yeah validating it's weird I think I honestly think you're right that it's fear-based and I think that I think that a lot of people you know they it it fucks with their step one because they they worry that if they see somebody else using or drinking Mm -hmm. in a way where they're reducing harm that a little secret voice inside their head might start being like maybe I can do that too and they're really afraid of that and so it, it is easier for them to just reject the other person than it is to actually interrogate that for themselves and to be like you know are you happy with your sobriety? Like, are you at a place in your recovery where you actually don't have a desire anymore to use? And if you do have a desire to use, maybe that's something, again, you should talk to your sponsor about, like, whatever, like, you know, it's like, that might be a you issue. Like that might actually be something that's a part of your own recovery stuff that you need to work on. Right. It is. It's also interesting because it it can go both ways too. eh? Like I've, uh, I've, I've heard like um, harm reduction advocates act as though being abstinent is like a fucking yes. is like a hate crime you know um, absolutely or to assume that we that we have those views about harm reduction when we like mm-hmm. overtly say that we don't yeah for mm-hmm. sure and like some people get like really bent out of shape about that kind of thing and uh yeah i don't know i think that that's fear-based too like in its, yeah. in its own way yeah um or people who act as though um you know being hammered 100 percent of the time has like no bad consequences other than right. that, like people are like treating you poorly or something you know what i mean as if you never no. like slip and like break your fucking head open or whatever like there's you know things happen when you're like fucking high all the time <laughs> right you know? for sure that's yeah. that's important is that like you know the principles of harm reduction are never to minimize that yes drug use does come with dangers there is dangers to everything that we do choose to do as adults right for whatever reason we choose to do it we have a right to choose to do it and not be cast out for it right yeah but um you know yeah i think it's it's definitely fear and and i've heard the same with harm reductionists as well many harm reductionists are sober not Mm -hmm. all of course not all lots of them still use or whatever um but the ones that are sober also have that fear to talk about their sobriety because then it's going to invalidate the beauty of harm reduction but not, neither one should cancel each other out like yeah, my hope totally. is that we start passing the batons back and forth more often is that absent people and harm reductionists or you know because i don't believe recovery has to be absence either i think people can be recovery yeah. in all different ways but let's just say about absent that we pass the baton back and forth. Like if I have a participant that's ready to investigate and possibly discover what abstinence can, means and how we can get there, then I pass the baton. And then if you have somebody that's really struggling with yeah. you know, relapses, then let's pass the baton back. Like let's let's help people live. Yeah, yeah. Because people are fucking dying. Like yeah. every day 
dying, losing their lives, their actual lives, losing their lives to the criminal, you know, to the prison system, losing limbs, losing HIV, all the things like what, what is our goal here to force people to be absent or to help people live as best that they can for themselves? This might be a little positive, um, a little positive story to mention to you. The the home group that I first picked up my first 24 hour chip in the, the, the home group that I got sober in, um, I visited there recently and they now at the front of the meeting, like at the table where they have all the big book and all the stuff, they have a naloxone kit right oh, on the table it. at the front of the meeting. And so, you know, the group voted that in. And I mean, when that, when that happened, I was like, that's literally the smartest thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, obviously all meetings should have naloxone on yeah, them. Yeah. Where, like, obviously, right? Like that's so fucking obvious. Um, but it's also beyond it's like practical use. It's also like symbolically yeah. like yes. it's, it's welcoming, it's humanizing. It makes people feel like it's okay if they might be high, you know? Yeah. Um, and so like that kind of shit, I'm really hoping to see more of, and that we can start to shift the culture to like, just be fucking humanizing and treat people like human beings and, and empower people to offer them what they need, you know? And, and yeah. yeah, I think the baton thing is, is a beautiful um, metaphor for that. Yeah, we're really not in competition. Like it's not whether harm reduction is better than abstinence. It's not about that. It's just like, we're all equal together and we're all trying to make this world and people feel the best that they can. And, um, that should be what wellness and recovery and all of it is anyways, Yeah, you know, not deciding who's better, who's, you know, more superior or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess just to close up, um, do you want to give um, our listeners just any info about how they can find you online or like how they can support you? <laughs> Don't go on social media and be mean to me. <laughs> I mean, our fans are not going to be you. I think your your community and your your like fan base will be probably pretty safe. Yeah. I don't have to worry about them sending me DMs about what a horrible person I am. Yeah, like maybe uh, our, okay. like our haters might. Yeah, but our haters don't listen to the fucking podcast. They don't, podcast, they don't listen so, to the podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's hilarious. Yeah. So um, resurrection with a K underscore of underscore me. That's all all the social medias, mainly okay. Instagram because I don't have the space for much. Um, and then you could visit the Sidewalk Project and see what we do there. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much it right now. I'm trying not to, I'm in school right now and I'm doing a lot of things. So I'm trying not to overbook myself, but that's, that's probably okay. good. Enough. We'll put the links in the show notes for people. Right on. Awesome. Yo, thank you so much for your time, man. This has been a really cool yeah. uh, interview and really happy to meet you. Yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> we did it. Thanks for being here. <laughs> thank you guys.